With student achievement stagnant and policymakers' appetite for school reform seemingly on the wane, it's increasingly clear that something is missing from the recipe for educational improvement the United States has pursued over the past two decades. Could that missing ingredient be student effort? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Adam Tyner, Associate Director of Research at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Along with EdNext Executive Editor Mike Petrilli, Adam is the author of the new article, The Case for Holding Students Accountable, How Extrinsic Motivation Gets Kids to Work Harder and Learn More, that will appear in the summer 2018 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Adam, welcome to the EdNext Podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. So let's start with the premise of your article that I suspect some listeners won't find immediately intuitive. You write, in the United States, we don't expect most kids to work very hard, and they don't. For all the talk of raising standards and implementing high-stakes testing, the U.S. is an outlier when it comes to holding students themselves to account and linking real-world consequences to academic achievement. Convince us that's the case, that American students really aren't working very hard. Well, the premise of the article, Marty, is that there's this vision of the education system as a elaborate system to create and produce education and deliver it to students. And that's a word, delivery, that you'll hear in the mission statements of a lot of education research organizations, policy organizations. And the premise of our article is that that's not the right way to think about education, that education is something that gets delivered like a pizza. <laughs> it's something that the students have to create for themselves to some extent, that they have to work through problems and they have to create those skills and it takes effort on their part. And um, and so in the United States, we have a lot of evidence that there's just students aren't working that hard. Um, if you look at um, if you look across uh, countries and people have looked at PISA, uh, they've looked at some measures derived from the PISA. John Bishop has some uh, measures he derived from the PISA. He turned into a diligence index that the United States scored pretty low on. Um, recently, uh, Colin Hitt in his dissertation, he was at the University of Arkansas. He developed a measure from the from the from the PISA scores that is uh, kind of like non-cognitive uh, measures from the PISA scores on effort. Like mm -hmm. how hard are kids working on the PISA when they actually take it? Because it's a zero stakes test. They don't have to actually work hard on it. And um, I suspect some of your listeners might not think that this is necessarily generalizable to all student effort in every aspect of their education. But it tells you something about how hard the kids are working in a low stakes environment. And the United States came in like 33rd of 40 on his measure of effort. So um, there's there's quite a bit of evidence that the average students, um, if you look at student self-reported data, the students just don't report studying all that much. You look at higher ed, students are self-reporting much less studying than they did a few decades ago. And if you look at high school, you'll see that there's pervasive anti-academic norms and there's a lot of problems. Now, that's not true of every school and every type of student. And some, there's some high achieving students in some districts where they have the helicopter parents who are organizing all their study sessions and putting them in the SAT classes and all that stuff. They're getting a lot of pressure and maybe they're working as hard as any kids in the world are. But in a lot of, in, in more of the average situation, there's just a lot of evidence that 
kids aren't working hard and we can't be so surprised because we're not necessarily incentivizing them to work very hard in a lot of cases. And so that's the premise of the of the piece. That policymakers have effectively been treating students as widgets who are passing through the education system, having something delivered or mm-hmm. inserted or into buckets. them. Yeah, they're yeah. they're they're recipients of of education that's being delivered to them rather than as John H. Bishop will probably quote ad nauseum because he's like the the best scholar on this and he's done a lot of great work on it. He has called students the frontline workers in the education system. So as you you know, to the extent that we think that education is about accumulating human capital, the education the the students themselves have to be the ones who are the on the front lines working. And if we're not thinking about why they have a reason to put down all of the amazing things that our modern consumer culture offers them and figure out how to factor polynomials. Like why would they choose to do that? If we're not thinking through what reasons they have for doing that, what incentive they have for doing that, then we're missing a huge part of the puzzle. Well, one potential answer to the question of why they wouldn't be doing that is that, look, it's the students who actually have strong incentives to succeed academically. After all, they're the ones who will ultimately experience the long-term benefits of education, which we know are substantial. So why can't we just rely on the signals students should be receiving from the labor market, from what they see around them in terms of the success of people in their peer groups? Um, Why isn't that enough? Why is this something that policymakers need to think about explicitly? Well, you're absolutely right. In the long-term Students have every incentive to work on their education. There are education is highly correlated with income and with all kinds of positive outcomes later in life. And uh, and so in a kind of more naive classical economic sense, like they have this future thing, this future incentive, and they should behave according to that. We should just be able to rely on labor market signals. But there's a couple of reasons that that doesn't really work in education. One is that the those outcomes are really far off. If you're talking about a 15-year-old kid who is going to have a labor market outcome eight or nine years later, that is a very distant outcome for them to be making their decisions based on. Yeah, and when the choice in the immediate term is math homework or mm-hmm. playing Fortnite, yeah. you know, 25 seems like a long way away. I mean, 25 seems like a long way away. Period. When you're when you're in high school, um, it, it it's a it's a very long distance, a big part of their life, and uh, I mean, in in the sense that it's you know half their lifetime away, mm-hmm. and it's hard for them to even conceive of what that is. So, if the answer to the question that I posed a minute ago, why put down the the Snapchat and um, you know pick up the algebra textbook is well, someday you might be an accountant. That's not a very compelling argument to them because it's just it's a very long ways away. And I think that most adults, honestly, if you told them you've got to work really hard and maybe in half your lifetime from now and, you know, 20 years or something, you'll see some benefit from it. A lot of people just walk away from that kind of deal. There's another reason why um, kids are particularly in need of these more immediate and immediate immediate stakes in the in their education. And that is that young people are just more present focused than older people are. Um, The younger that you get, the more present focused people are. Many experiments have been done on this. And so, um, although I think this really applies to adults too, the unreasonableness of expecting people to be incentivized by things that happen, you know, so far off in the future, um, we know that young people just, they need a more immediate thing and a more immediate uh, tangible thing uh, to to really impact their behavior. My seven and 11 year old 
can uh, confirm that observation for you uh, <laughs> if you want to come over at some point to check that out. So, uh, but I could also imagine, all right, uh, saying that um, if the challenge is getting students to work harder in order to reap these long-term benefits that feel very distant, isn't the solution just to make schools more engaging? That is to, you know, make the work so intrinsically rewarding that students are doing it just because it has yeah. value in and of itself, uh, rather than in order to achieve some long-term goal or one that you create for them or a shorter term. In the shorter term. Incentive. Yeah. Uh, I think that we absolutely need to think about how to make schools more engaging. And that intrinsic drive is an important thing. Student motivation. Uh, again, I'll quote John Bishop and Luger Woosman. They say that student effort is the most important factor in the education process. The more that we can get students to contribute effort and work hard, the more that they're going to learn and the more that they're going to master the material that they're going to need for the kind of jobs that, you know, who knows what kind of jobs they're going to be doing in another 10 years, but they're going to need skills and flexibility and, and, and they're going to need that stuff. And so we absolutely need to think about intrinsic motivation and we need to have teachers. There's been a lot of work done by psychologists to talk about, um, to, to teachers about um, how to promote intrinsic motivation to give students more choice, for example, in their assignments or to uh, connect it to their, uh, to their experience or to make sure it's at the right level for them. Those kinds of things are really important and we need to think about them. But for policymakers, for people who are on, uh, you know, in state legislatures or in the Department, Department of Education or even at the school board level, those are really difficult to get leverage on. Those are um, those classroom level changes and interactions between teachers and students. We can get at it a little bit through having a better teacher workforce and by having better teacher preparation um, and getting them to learn those those kinds of things that uh, a lot of teachers learn and obviously intuitively know. Um, but uh, but we can't we need. I think student motivation is such an important thing that we need to have an all hands on deck approach. And so policymakers need to be thinking about what we can do to make, to, to, to move the needle on this too. So I hear you saying we can take a both and approach that is try and work on the intrinsic motivation front while also thinking about creating extrinsic rewards. A hundred percent. I think some people tend to think of those two types of motivators as being in tension with one another and mm -hmm. suggest that there may even be a danger that, if we rely too much yeah. on extrinsic motivators, we can decrease student effort by eroding students' intrinsic desire to learn. Why are you not concerned about that? Well, in the 1970s, there were a number of, of studies that started to look at this question of if you give people incentives, does it change their behavior in ways that you didn't expect? Like, you know, the normal like old school economics idea of the homo economicus the person who always wants more money and so they're going to pursue more money and it's not going to affect their behavior in other ways you know, psychologists and and later scholars have dispelled that people don't just respond to incentives in the most direct way sometimes sometimes incentives can backfire and so one thing that they found i mean one of the classic studies on this i think maybe the first one uh, by Mark Lepper at Stanford University was they they took students who liked drawing and they um, they gave some of them cash rewards for drawing and started paying them for how many pictures they would they would draw and um, they found that when they removed the incentive the students were drawing a lot less after that and so that's a a very interesting finding um, that incentives can backfire in certain cases 
And um, it's definitely something that we need to think about. Um, but the problem is that that finding was almost too clever, I think. It, and so the people who found out about this, this really interesting finding in psychology tended to start framing intrinsic and extrinsic motivation as some kind of zero-sum trade-off where if you have some intrinsic motivation, then that means that you don't need extrinsic motivation. Extrinsic, if you have extrinsic motivation, it's going to always undermine intrinsic motivation. But later scholars who looked at this started realizing that that was really oversimplified. And that actually incentives can undermine motivation in the case that Mark Lepper found. And in cases like that, where intrinsic motivation is already really high, and then you, um, you know, implement a really poorly designed incentive system, but in other cases, intrinsic motivation can, or ex extrinsic motivators like incentives can actually uh, bolster intrinsic motivation. If they help you to, if it helps me to gain mastery over some material, if that's what it takes to get me to learn this new skill, uh, having that new knowledge can be really empowering and make people want to learn more. Um, another thing is that um, part of this intrinsic motivation thing has to do with what students' preferences are, what kind of things they like to do, what they think is cool. And if you have really poorly designed incentives, and by the way, we all, we already have lots of incentives in the system. So it's not necessarily that we're advocating you need to have incentives versus not having them because we have lots of incentives already. They're, we just don't think they've been thought out very well. So in the world that we have, you have incentives to get grades, for example. But if those grades are based on a kind of if the students perceive that as being uh, graded kind of on a curve relative to other relative, students in their building, relative to other students, which most students do perceive that, um, then it creates these incentives for them to try to lower the average so that everybody can do less work and get the same grade distribution. And that's something that's been studied by um, economists to, to look at um, uh, to, to look at these phenomenon of like nerd harassment and why would this they've looked at formal models and they've also looked at some empirics. And but, that idea goes all the way back actually to Jim Coleman, yeah, the go, famous sociologist of the Coleman report who really prior to that work, spent a lot of time in American high schools and said, look, the incentives here are not to do well academically. Right. That that tends to get you ostracized. And it's not clear that that's changed very much over the subsequent 50 years. Yeah, absolutely. So so I, that's the, the idea that these are the intrinsic and extrinsic motivation are in this um, you know zero-sum trade-off is just wrong. Incentives, we know, can help shape uh, student norms. They can shape human norms in other circumstances as well, but in schools, they can shape those norms. And like Coleman was alluding to, having a better incentive system in place can lead to better social norms that will actually make kids like school and think school is not as lame because they don't have to have that constant bringing down the average so that they can try to you know gain the system in that way, which a lot of high school students are doing. So your article is not only a theoretical discussion along the lines of what we've been having so far, right. but also a synthesis of evidence that you see as suggesting that student-focused accountability can, in fact, boost effort and ultimately outcomes. What evidence do you find most persuasive on those points? And in particular, what kinds of programs appear to work? What should policymakers be considering? Well, there's a bunch of different things that that scholars and policymakers have done to approach this question of better incentivizing students. And one of the most important ones is the idea of separating teaching and assessment. 
And so external exams that assess students independently of where you take the role of, of assessor out of the teacher's hands um, is, is one thing that has been kind of theoretically grounded well, but has also been shown to uh, change students' um, motivation and their effort. And so those kind of external exams, uh, end of course exams in the, in the United States that are um, tied to student stakes, um, AP exams are another kind of external exam. And then in the literature, the exit exams literature is the most, this is the most common thing that people talk about in terms of this kind of separating teaching and assessment. And that kind of structure, there's a lot of evidence that goes back for uh, in international, at least international evidence that looks at this exit exams system and sees a lot of benefits in terms of incentivizing student effort. But probably the thing that I think is the most um, compelling to me, maybe that I've study that I've read most recently that has been the most compelling is the the studies the the program impact evaluations that have been done on the NIMSI, the National Math and Science Initiative uh, program that is um, in a, several states, but um, it's highly concentrated in Texas. And Kirbo Jackson at uh, Northwestern has done these really high quality program evaluations of that program, which gives cash incentives to both students and teachers and has some other elements too. It's not just an incentive program, but it has shown just really phenomenal outcomes for, um, for this program where uh, students are actually persisting in college longer uh, after being exposed to the program. And there are some groups that have had, I mean, I think that Hispanic students who are a big part of the population um, that they studied in Texas had 11% higher uh, income uh, several years out from from high school or college uh, that they saw. So, I mean, these were like really powerful effects and they were effects of kind of an, an all-encompassing, like change the incentive alignment and, um, and, and get students doing this really high, rig- really difficult, rigorous content and have them be independently assessed. So, and in that case, it's doing it explicitly via cash incentives. You're offering right. both students and teachers cash up front if they succeed in taking on this challenge. And I'm happy to say that we were ahead of the curve in reporting some of that evidence. I believe Caribou Jackson's paper on the National Math and Science Initiative appeared first in Education Next before going on to uh, follow up the students later on. But let's go back to the first point you made about sort of a broader set of policies that separate assessment from instruction. And you mentioned exit exams. I guess the argument here that this changes the incentive structure goes back to that question of the The pure norms that Mm -hmm. emerge when students are evaluated relative to one another, if we can eliminate that. Um, But in many cases, exit exams, we also think about attaching incentives to them as well. In other countries, that may mean access to a certain post-secondary opportunity. It may actually be something that you carry with you on your uh, CV as you head into the labor market that actually has really important consequences downstream. In the U.S., we've tried a version of exit exams in many states by tying high school graduation to exit exams Mm -hmm. in math and reading, at least. Why isn't that enough? Uh, And how do you interpret the evidence on those exit exams, which I read as not being particularly encouraging? Yeah, well, I interpret the the evidence on that as in the international uh, evidence, there's 
quite a lot of evidence that these have been a powerful boost of uh, for for academic uh, achievement. Yeah, I very much agree with that. That but, of mm -hmm. all the policy variables that researchers have tried to link to mm -hmm. differences in achievement internationally, whether you have one of these exit exams present seems to be the most consistent predictor of of student performance. Yeah, in the in the United States, we have not had that experience clearly from the from the studies that have been done it's been kind of unclear whether exit exams were really positively impacting student achievement or not some studies have shown that it, they did some some have shown that they didn't a lot have shown uh, no effect um and i think one of the reasons in the united states we've always had the bar for passing very low these have been minimum competency exams for the for the most part and so um they're by definition, because they only have one outcome, it's just either pass or fail. There's no variable outcome. They're really only going to change a small number. The, the It's only changing the incentives for the students who are kind of on the bubble there anyway. And so I wouldn't expect a huge um, change uh, from from those types of institutions. And, uh, and so I actually think that, to be honest with you, as people who are concerned about student motivation, student accountability, it, it, among those people, I'm probably less inclined to pass-fail exit exams than, than most people are. And there's a couple of reasons for it. One is the pass-fail nature and the experience that we've had in the United States of having these kind of low bar um, exit exams. Um, but the other is that I also am concerned that it also is based on a very long-term outcome. It's not maybe not like 10 years out, but it's still two or three years out. Um, it's still pretty far off for a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old to change a lot of their behavior. And so I'm actually very encouraged by the recent adoption of end-of-course exams that are content-based like exit exams are, but are linked to a specific course. So that rather than having you know a set of exams you have to pass your junior year, um, you have these ad hoc exams that can then influence your grades so we can help solve that curve raiser issue. Um, but there's even been some experimentation with printing the the results of those uh, exam scores on transcripts. As you were saying, you know, in some countries they do that for exit exams. They print your math score on your transcript. It follows you. And um, that is not a system that has matured in the United States. Um, but it's something that if states were to adopt it and to adopt some common standards, I think that it's something that could where, you know, people in the uh, who are deciding about jobs and, and college admissions could look at those um, much more nuanced test scores than just a one-shot ACT, SAT, and be able to get a lot more information about that student. And in turn, that incentivizes more investment in those skills. One of the interesting things to me is that it seems in the U.S. we have a de facto system of exit exams that uh, mirrors that of other high-performing systems internationally through the AP program, mm -hmm. uh, but it just is limited to a fairly selected right. part of the student population. Uh, that's emerged sort of organically over time. Mm -hmm. uh, for those students, it really does have implications for their post-secondary options, how well they perform on Absolutely. those tests, which are broader than just math and reading. Um, it seems to me that what you're talking about with a broader set of end-of-course exams is a way to try to uh, generalize that phenomenon so that everyone experiences that change in incentives rather than just a select few. That's exactly right. Um, the AP program has been really successful, I think, and uh, it's something that has a lot of respect. And um, and that concept, it's the same concept, separating teaching and assessment. It allows 
the students and the teacher to all be on the same team. We're all reaching for the same goal, the same external standard. There's no kind of negotiation between the students and the teacher. And I've been in classes where it's very clear that it's like the objective is to derail the teacher so that we don't have to cover this unit and maybe she'll drop it off of the exam. That I've been in those classrooms before and that doesn't happen. It, there's no incentive to do that if the exam is if the if the assessment happens externally and isn't written by the teacher. So it it solves that problem. There's really some as I've been looking into this some there's interesting cases of this outside of even high school. The Swarthmore Honors Program does a similar thing where they actually you take these you take these tests or I'm sorry you you take these courses um, in their honors program and you're not assessed by your own professor you're assessed by a professor at another institution and they they bring them in and I'm not sure if they Skype them in now or what they do but they've been doing this for a long time and it's a way of like getting the teacher and the and the students on the same we all have aligned incentives and it it breaks down the kind of um, Arthur Powell and some other, his co-authors talked about this phenomenon in high schools of the avoidance treaties where students and teachers make this deal of like, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. Like, don't expect too much from me and I won't cause problems. And uh, having external assessment, just it solves those problems. My guest today has been Adam Tyner, Associate Director of Research at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Along with Mike Petrilli, he's the author of The Case for Holding Students Accountable, available now at educationnext.org. Adam, thanks for being part of the podcast. Great to be with you, Marty. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.